0: Welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves, and hopefully, the world. And now, here are John Dupuis, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, Episode 45, Scott Killaby a non-dual approach to recovery from alcoholism and addiction.
1: Okay, everyone. Well, welcome back. And here we are again at episode, what episode are we, Doug? Yeah,
0: I'm you not know. even sure at this point. 40-something. Oh, 40 40-something 40
1: <laughs> 40 40 something of uh, of the journey of integral recovery. And we have a super cool guest uh, uh, today that I've known for, it's been a quite a while, Scott. Uh, it must be 10 years. But anyway, Scott Killaby who is, I'll let you talk about, you know, your program that you have and what you're doing, but uh, he is a, a teacher of not only recovery, but non-dual recovery. How freaking cool is that? And I, I just think, Scott, over the years, I've known you and seeing you teach and in our conversations, you're so clear about it. You know, you're just right there. You're obviously coming from a place that you understand what you're talking about. And you have this ego that's just totally not involved with yourself. You know, so a lot of times you get, you know, gurus and teachers and blah, blah, blah. And they have, oh, just an awful thing. And you're just so, I won't say humble, but it's like some blend thereof that you're just really present and beautiful. And I feel totally safe when you teach about this. So I just wanted to put that out there. So Scott, Tell us, first of all, what the hell is non-dual mean? And everybody talks about it, but maybe there's some of our listeners who really, you know, are not quite sure what that means.
2: Well, I mean, I guess you could, that, that's a loaded question right off the bat. I was at a conference once and there was a bunch of uh, non-dual teachers. Uh, Tammy Simon was actually interviewing them and she was going around the room to ask each one of them what non-dual recognition was and she would put the microphone up to them and they would just sit there and that without uttering a word, she got frustrated by it. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't, got, goes in, don't go zen on us. <laughs> <laughs> it's too them.
3: late. It's too late. <laughs>
2: um, but if I were to put words to it, essentially it's a state of consciousness in which um, the sense of separation uh, of self and other um, begins to break down to where there's a more sense of, of, of a felt sense of oneness. Um, which is very, very liberating and also brings many challenges uh, because it's sort of, as you recognize that non-dual awareness that's the foundation of your experience, lots of stuff that you have been hiding from yourself kind of comes to the light. But that's really both the good news and the kind of bad news for people is because what, what I like about non-dual recovery is, that, is recognizing that, that basic non-dual awareness as the foundation really does bring everything eventually to the surface. And that's really what recovery, for me, has to be about. It has to be about bringing these things that are driving us to compulsive behaviors and activities to the surface so we can examine what's behind it all. So that's, yeah, it's, it's great. It's hard to define. It's more experiential, as you know, than anything. But that's a good start. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. Um,
1: um, and any, anybody else have any, any questions or comments at this point?
3: I'd love to hear hear you talk into it more. I know I'm I I just I love sitting and and listening to Scott and taking
1: it in, so yeah. Yeah, we were, we were at the conference and I was in the front row, mm-hmm. but you had a lousy sound system, so I was like I couldn't hear it, you know. And the, the bad thing about teachers when it really sacred, they talk like this. And I was with <laughs> Diane Hamilton one time. Like, I'm gonna have to sit in your lap if I'm gonna get this, or you're gonna have to speak up. So. Uh, anyway, yeah, I didn't. I wasn't able to, to to follow everything you were saying, but I just went inside and sat with the uh, with the energy that was going on. So, Scott, so you say this is a, a an essential part of recovery, especially the, the recovery that you're doing, and also of integral recovery. If you know you guys have read the book and 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 listen to the discussions that we have here. So how do you say I'm a, you know, say I'm a young man, 30 years old, and I come to you and I've just had this really rough run with drugs, you know, alcohol, cocaine, cigarettes, marijuana, whatever. And I show up and I'm in a pretty sorry state, just beginning to, you know, clean up, detox physically. What do you do? How do you get us to the point where we begin to understand the deepest nature of ourselves is where we touch into that non-dual reality?
2: Right. So, you know, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do it at the detox uh, phase. You know, there's certain practical concerns and medical things that have to be taken care of at that stage. But we can use mindfulness, which is sort of part of the non-dual awareness, to, to reduce withdrawal, along with medication, to reduce the symptoms of withdrawal. And then we just sort of stabilize the person. There's lots of practical concerns, you know, in early recovery in terms of uh, just reorienting, reorienting yourself to a sober and clean life that we have to deal with just basic everyday stuff. But as the person settles into the program, we start talking to them about um, just from it, in terms of integral uh, theory, the, the the first quadrant, interior awareness, because um, we focus there. Obviously, they're all connected, obviously, and you can't just focus on one without touching the others, but mm. our focus is in that quadrant. And so it's starting to talk to them about what is the, that's driving the compulsive behavior. And you could get into a conversation about, you know, it's there's genetics involved, there's early social environment, developmental, uh, ego development. But the way that we talk about it is, is to try to, to relate to people's actual experience, which they know that they've come with, there's this great article from Canada, um, sometimes the Canadians are ahead of us in a way, about about languaging things. And even though you can talk about addiction as a disease, what I like talking about it as this article talked about it as, is it's, a, it's often a response response. To trauma, or it's a response to something that happened to us, or how we're feeling. We're, that's that's how we learned how to take care of what happened to us. So we're trying to, in the early stages, we're teaching people about how to see addiction as a response, rather than so much as a disease. Although you can talk about it in that narrative, um, but if they talk about it in terms of response, there's less stigma involved, and they start to to focus on okay, so I'm doing this, I'm doing this for reasons that I want to discover what those reasons are. And, and we kind of, you know, we find we find patterns. We find there's, if there's trauma involved, the, the, the drugs and alcohol are a way to respond to the trauma. The shame is tied into it, the shame of being addicted, the shame of hiding, the shame of lying, and the destruction that it's caused, really dealing with that as a driver because we found that shame really is a driver. The more people feel ashamed about themselves, they tend to kind of continue in the same loop. So we're dealing with these... Uh, these little pillars here, if you will, and then obviously the sense of self, like who they take themselves to be, and there's lots of eddies, nooks and crannies to that. Um, just one is just simple deficiency stories, like "I'm not good enough," "I'm worthless," um, which are often tied to trauma and shame.
3: Yeah, yeah, um,
2: yeah. We're trying to get them to see that that it's that, 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 that there's a, there's there are driving elements behind this behavior, and it, and it's a way to re, the behavior is a way to respond so as we begin to unhook them from the traumatic events and the emotions and sensations and thoughts related to that and to the shame and to the self-esteem issues they they start being able to abide in that presence more and more and then we're just helping them stabilize in that while not bypassing anything it's always a game of of making sure that what what are we not including in this in this work and, and where where is the the behavior going in certain directions that are pre-relapsed and then how can we get at what's driving that so it's it's quite a, like a, it's almost like surgery on the interior mm-hmm. level I mean mm-hmm. in a way because we're really looking at what is it that you believe what is it that you're carrying around what 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 are you running from and then trying to address that and map it all out too we, we map it out with each client exactly where the where we, f- we think the origins of the trauma and, and where's the shame hooked into certain things that happen. And it's broader than that, but we tend to focus on those three things. a lot.
1: Yeah. I was just going to go back to the, the reason when, you know, we talk about a disease primarily to get the fricking insurance companies to cough up, right. It's something, a disease they you know, they have to pay. Oh, yeah. The, you know, and insurance companies make money, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on any toes, not by uh, helping people and, and paying for, for treatment by keeping all the money, all they can. So that's been a difficulty. And also, when you realize you have a disease and it's kind of, oh, I have a disease, you know, maybe I, you know, I, you take care of sick people, Man, I need help? And, and there, there's, some, there's some beneficial things there. On the other hand, there's the shame. Oh, I'm sick. I have a disease and everything. It's, I mean, the, the foundation, Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean, why the hell does it need to be anonymous if it's not something bad? Right, yeah, To be ashamed right, right. of it, so it's kind of built into the the, the source code of of the modern uh, recovery movement. Um, and I'll I'll desist for my brethren here to see if you have any comments or questions. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah.
3: I really uh, uh, really appreciate the the, the sur- almost like like you said the surgical um, precision with which you approach the work that you do, Scott. It's very impressive to me. I'm I'm reflecting as I'm listening to you. Um, that much of my work uh, in treatment centers in the last uh, couple of years has been focused around the entry point being shame and stigma, just starting right with that so that we bring that into the room. And it sets a different tone. In other words, I'm not, I'm not approaching the addiction as a thing or uh, like you're suggesting, John, as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a, a disease that insurance will reimburse, but Almost stepping uh, stepping back from that and looking at just the human element of what it feels like to be sitting here right now. Um, having said that, when I listen to you, I take notes, Scott, because I feel like there's a there's a real uh, clear articulation that you've articulated over all of the years of your work, and also a real clear intentionality that I I really I'm continuing to kind of absorb. I've been reading your books since I met you. Just you know, a couple of months ago and uh, really taking it in and finding my own kind of way with it, my own voice with it. But I, I'd love to hear more. I really, I really mean it. I'm just taking notes. I really, I really resonate with, with the, the message that you're bringing, Scott.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you very much. There's, there's so many different places we could go, but you, when you brought up stigma, something that we've really been developing at the Kilby Center is mm-hmm. to understand, and John, you can, and both of you can appreciate this. The shadow work process that mm-hmm. the, the Ken Wilber and you guys have all, you know, I still use and it's very much a process that's mm-hmm. integrated here. Um, and the way that we've been using is terms of, this is a kind of an interesting part of our model, which I'd yeah. like to talk a little bit about, is dealing with external pressure. Because what we find is a lot of people come into treatment because, because of, they feel condemned by the people around them and by themselves. Yeah. And there's a lot of shame in that. Yeah. And so they get here and, you know, it's like they don't even know why they're here or if they want to recover, many of them. And so what we do is we release that external pressure. So there's a lot of conditioning that comes mm-hmm. that they're, they're just responding to this pressure to be something different. They've done it. They've responded to it all their life, even before mm-hmm. drugs. You know, the parents had expectations that you, you should be this, mm-hmm. you should be that. Mm-hmm. And so they, they just feel that all their life. So what we're trying to do with the treatment center is to lift the, the hammer of that mm-hmm. oppression um, off of them like so that we, we as a staff don't don't do that to them and we start to treat them with unconditional love and and really try to nurture their own freedom instead of trying to force it on onto them but part of it, you have to get creative and, and one of the creative ways is through the shadow process of re-owning that external pressure and really owning that I judge myself that I'm ashamed of myself regardless of what other people say or that I'm pressuring myself and all that shame and pressure and all of the stuff that we, we internalize mm-hmm. becomes, I think, part of the preoccupation of addiction. When you talk about three stages of addiction, I mean, what does it mean to be preoccupied with something? Mm-hmm. It's not just like that I'm getting high every time or that I want to avoid withdrawal. It's that it's, at that point, my entire like yeah. mind is is preoccupied with the entire subject of addiction and who I am in that addiction and how others view me. So we, mm-hmm. we want to relieve the pressure of that thinking so yeah. that they re-own everything on their own side, and then they can discover what it is that they want. And frankly, some people decide that they don't want treatment at that point.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure, you know? yeah, for sure.
2: And, then, and so, so we say, well, so then, it, so if that's what you want, then go do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we try to intervene and try to educate, but ultimately, but, but many people, when, they, when that external pressure falls away, they finally have to sit with this question of, why am I here, and, and what is it that I want now that I've relieved that repression barrier? Mm-hmm and then they find, then we start talking to them and getting them really juiced up like well look this might be these are the reasons that you're using things and that if we can if we can look at these these things underneath there it's not just that you'll you'll eventually lose that desire to use but that you'll find greater states of peace and and freedom this is not even ultimately about just being absent or or being someone in recovery it's about transformation you know but we so if we can hook them after the pressure gets relief, we can hook them to become interested and to light the fire within them, those are the folks, obviously, that, that do better. But it, it runs the full gamut, obviously, of people that come into treatment.
1: Yeah, and I, I sent an article to, to Bob and Doug, uh, you know, that I, I read, and it was, it was uh, basically, it was, what, what good things happen when you stop drinking? You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know you lose weight. You don't feel like crap every morning, you know? It's like, da, 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 it goes down this whole list, and it's like, oh, uh, yeah, you know, so you do the kind of... Uh, the uh, motivational interview thing, it's like, what's good about it? Well, I love the flavor, I love the juice, I love the burn, I love the losing myself for a moment. And, oh yeah, and I saw, I saw an interview with with Eric Clapton, who's also in recovery, but he was talking about this blues album he was making, it's one called uh, From the Cradle, I believe, and he, and he had this beautiful thing, he says, you know, when I play this, I just lose, lose myself. I just lose myself, and it's so good. I, I need that. I need to lose this whole structure sometimes. And I think that's one of the benefits that, we, that we, uh, you know, we, we pursue, I think, sometimes with drugs and alcohol and these substances, is to lose that burden of self that is so painful upon us. And then sometimes in this deep practice, we get those moments too where the self goes away, and we find that we're something much greater, much larger, much more connected, and, and yeah. we can bring that back. To the small self and it's like it's okay, it's okay, you know, because what you really are at the deepest level is really, really good. And at that point, I don't know, healing can happen. We can be we have a larger context to hold all our suffering and then not only our suffering suffering the whole world, everyone, and
2: we can begin to it's beautiful, more beautiful. And the, the, I love how you said that what we are at the at the foundation is is very good because if you don't ultimately offer somebody something more than their drugs or alcohol offers then you lose, you lose. Yeah, Yeah, why not? And often people think, because when I think about when I was using, you said it exactly, when I swallowed a handful of pills or drank alcohol, for a point in time I lost the structure of myself, and I could just, my problems would fall away. Now, obviously it wasn't ultimately satisfying because it's an altered, there's an altered state to it too, which you know, um, and so then there's all the withdrawal and everything. So I was seeking, I think, back then to to lose myself, right? And I think ultimately when you talk about non-duality, it is about losing you don't lose the you don't completely lose a sense of self, but you certainly can see through the, the parts that are false or that are weighing you down or that you're clinging to. And and it can seem as though that the structure there at the end is very, very light and free. And that's really what we were trying to find when we were using—is that sense of lightness and freeness about who we are and about and about everything. So, yeah, you have to you have to offer them something. But often people will say, "Well, I can go immediately get high." With yeah. with this work, I'm not necessarily immediately going to to find freedom. I said, "Yeah, but 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 the high is always temporary, and you can yeah. continue to do that." And what we're trying to do here is to is to bring into a deep sense, almost um, on some level, a, a more of an irrevocable uh, freedom and peace not not that it's not disturbed now and again right. but but that's something it's not based on just feeling good because that can happen too <laughs> with bliss and peace but but more on on deep transformation and 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 I think a lot of people on drugs and alcohol can connect with that message because they know on some level that that's really what they were doing yes. when they were getting high yes
1: yeah yeah there's right. a word in buddhism about just the 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 ever present, I forget the, the term, just the miraculous ever present of the isness in every moment, you know. So you could be in Dachau or, you know, Auschwitz, or one of those horrible things and, and at some level there's there's this radiant perfection, you know. And I think we even when we have this realization and we begin to stabilize, that doesn't mean we're no longer human that we just sit up there like, you know, a bunch of dissociated Buddhists or Buddha. Sorry, Buddhists out there. Love you yeah. guys. Uh, but, but you actually feel your feelings more deeply and you have your new relationship with what it means to grieve, what it means to be happy, what it means to be horny, what it means to be this, that, or whatever states arise, they come and they go and they're not ultimately true, but when you can hold them in this deeper context, then, then, um, these states can become tools and they become, uh, friends and they become teachers and they become gifts that we can work with our relative small self, but in the holding context of this deeper knowledge of who and what we really are to keep
2: this level I mean that's it just working exactly like you said working with the small self which is how we use our inquiries to work with the small self and then having that non-dual awareness as this as the all-pervading context for it and and I don't want to speak as if you know people are realizing that in the first couple weeks of recovery because there's a there's a process to this right. but, but but absolutely you said something else that really Move me, but I can't remember what it was. I want to hear from Doug. Doug, yeah, you had um, I thought.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I did. Uh, mm-hmm. I was actually going to ask about what we're talking into now. I guess uh, that is that non-duality is both the simplest thing in the world because it's always already there, and also can be quite difficult for some people to realize. Sometimes, especially those who are early in the recovery process. Um, just as a quick review to some of our listeners who are. Uh, in the process of still learning integral theory, Ken Wilber discusses the states of consciousness as they relate to meditative states as the gross body, the subtle body, the causal state, the witnessing state, and then non-dual as the fifth state. So it's you know a fairly advanced and challenging place for some people to get, even though it is simultaneously the simplest of all. Um, I wonder, Scott, and wanted to ask you about... Uh, the way you work with people as as you progress this, as, as you mentioned, it can be, you know, it can take it can take some work to be able to to get to that place that is always already there. And mm-hmm. um, just just curious as to how you start to cultivate these these realizations and get mm-hmm. to that place where, from a non dual perspective, it's it's hard for me at least to to see non dual awareness and addiction peacefully coexisting because once you have those realizations and can sustain them parts of the small s self that were causing our traumatic uh response patterns just don't seem to matter in the same way anymore the stigma and shame starts to fall away and i just wondered how you approach that uh, Mm -hmm. as you work with people
2: yeah i mean in some ways what what we're really doing is trying to light a fire that's already there within people because they've been, they've been using drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever, and they've been focused on that. So what we try to get them focused on is this transformation, the possibility of the transformation, which means bringing them to, to certain states early on in recovery, showing them a taste of what freedom is from shame. And so to, in order to help light that fire, because certainly within a 60, 90-day, even 5 months treatment episode, we can't necessarily bring them to the every place that we want to bring them, but but we can light the fire with them, and once that's what happened for me in my recovery is once I dropped the drugs and alcohol, I became interested in transformation, and that became my focus, and it was actually a very healthy focus, even though I can tell you that I was a bit obsessed with it, uh, awakening, <laughs> but but you know it served me well in the end, so. So there's, and there's also the paradox of of, of giving them a, a bit of a carrot to say there is this deeper transformation that's possible, and by the way, it's found here in the present moment, and and so and and you have to actually work with that paradox because um, it's also there's a gradual sort of unfolding into the deeper states that happens, but it's always touching base again and again with with
1: the presence of moment. Yeah. yeah, and you have to, I think, go back to what you were saying, Doug, you know, uh, you, once you got this, but you have to have, it has to be stabilized, okay? I mean, you can, we can have states of non-duality boom, you know? It's like, uh, I always joke about, you know, the guy doing uh, mushrooms on the beach in Oaxaca in 68. So, dude, you know, that was so cool. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, but that was 68. One of you had done for me recently. And, and so, so one, I mean, you, first you have to have a taste, right? And I think that goes, uh, the, uh, the Zen, uh, uh, ox herding, uh, photo of uh, pictures, right, you know, right. the whole story of it, waking up and all this stuff. So you find that like, there is an ox and you find your ego anyway, you get to it. And finally, finally, you can stabilize this awareness. So you have to keep working on it, you know? And, uh, so that it becomes, I think Ken talked about, it's like language, you know, once you got language, right. Unless you have brain disease or, you know, you get hurt or something like that. And you could be on a, on a desert Island where you haven't had to talk to anything, but you know the monkeys in the trees for 10 years and when they come to rescue you it's going to be a little bit awkward talking you know to another human being but you have language and so when you get this stuff embedded finally through practice through work through through the discipline of the interior contemplative work then it's like it's there when we need it you know and you might not completely be consciously aware about every moment but it's just it's just a head nod away it's it's right there that can be uh, kicked into to the filter which you're understanding reality
2: to, if that makes any sense to anybody but me. Yeah, it totally does. And Doug, to also answer your question. Like sometimes in in the early recovery when we're working with people, a lot of it is just to teach them how to come down into the body and feel in a in a way that isn't overwhelming anymore. So that they're actually feeling and not bypassing all these stu- all the stuff that they've been. So there's a lot of training that goes on. Just to, but people are often very grateful just to know that they can, for example, if they had friend died of an overdose you know five years ago that they can come and and finally grieve openly and presently through the body without having to because people tend to grieve by focusing up here a, a lot so to bring it down to the body but not just with grief with shame with anger bringing the anger up <clears throat> So that's what a lot of the early work is before we even get to kind of the non-dual part is, is teaching them how to be there because I think that's what ends up helping to ground people as they do recognize that greater state of awareness. You're grounded the more that you're connecting to the very human emotions that you've been running from. So a lot of it is training on that level.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Will you touched on it a little bit, Scott, but it, I, I'm always interested what's your story? You know, how did you, how did you come to be Scott Killaby and uh, you know, teacher of non-duality, a teacher of recovery and running your own treatment program. And, you know, there's a story there and uh, uh, I'd love to hear, you know, whatever, you know, as much attention or as much time you want to take.
2: Yeah. Um, Middle-class family and in grew up in Indiana. Dad was a hard sto- hardware store owner, kind of like the mayor of the town in a way everybody loved him. Everybody knew him. So I was well known in the community, for, you know, growing up. Um, and then, but, but I, I feel like I was born like a seeker, um, always just looking, just looking, looking, seeking, trying to figure out life, understand it, even from an early age. In sixth grade, I was bullied very badly for for what I know now being to be I was gay, and they knew it. And these were my friend, my group of friends who turned on me. So there's physical violence. There was ridicule. It was a deeply traumatic experience. I was home for school. Uh, from school for about three months. Um, And then directly after that, I I picked up tobacco and then marijuana and then alcohol, which I know now was a way to medicate the terrifying fear and unlovability that I experienced from that event. So stayed addicted to drugs and alcohol progressed to my drug of choice, which were painkillers, because I was diagnosed with an atypical migraine uh, pain in my spine when I was 20. So the doctor's you know, not even asking about my, I had already been addicted without asking about any of that. They just said, here's some really powerful painkillers. And uh, continued to use that for another 12 to 14 years. And it got progressively, obviously progressively and progressively worse. Until the end, um, I was doing unimaginable ways of trying to control my use, like I would lock. I would get a big bottle of 90 painkillers, and I would lock it into a fireproof safe of mine, literally. And then I would take the key, and I would either mail the key back to me, or I would go put it in a bank deposit box every night. And that was just so that I couldn't get into the fireproof Mm -hmm. safe because if I had, if if I could get access to anything, I would take it. So I was trying to control my use. And there was lots of other examples of just insane ways of trying to control the use of that. Because the when I used them, it was literally like candy. I mean, it would just put 10 pills right here and swallow. And then, like, you know, within 20 minutes, I'd, I'd, I'd be throwing up and have to put more in. I would end up just jaundiced. I mean, you, I'd look in the mirror after a three- or four-day binge, and my, my skin's just all green and yellow. Um, so eventually, I, I just had one of those rock-bottom moments. Literally, it was, it, was like a, it was almost a cliche. I was at my law office practicing law. And I opened up the drawer, and I saw one painkiller. And I thought, that there's no way that's going to work. And there's there's not enough in the world to satisfy me. (laughs) And so then called my brother, who was in recovery, got involved in the 12-step program. But within a number of, which helped a lot, within a number of two or three years, I became a spiritual seeker. I mean, just full on. Um, Wanted to reach enlightenment, spent my days and nights living inquiry and living meditation for about a year and a half. It was really the only thing that I did other than eat and sleep. And I was even doing it during work. Like I was inquiring during work and everything. Um, And then had a very powerful, a couple of very powerful awakening experiences. Um, One was just the utter stillness like that I had never reached before. It's like I literally, my jaw was dropped just how utterly still Life was, and it was deeply, deeply satisfying and peaceful. And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, what? That has always eluded me. And then other examples of just seeing all the different frameworks and religions and philosophies as being rather empty. They're not re- real in the same way that I thought. You know, it, it, there, there was there was an illusory nature to all of them, and just a, a lightness fell over me. And then later on, having experience of, of oneness, where I was petting my dogs and literally feeling that, that I am that's that I'm that and they are me and then walking around and seeing, oh oh my God, everything is is me, like that, not even me, not me, the small me. But every there's no separation anywhere. I couldn't find a crack in the universe and then tons of laughter, just laughing at time, laughing at, at, at how how silly we take time to be objective and and, and um and death. And seeing that death wasn't real and that we don't die. And then just laughing, literally on the ground laughing and and grabbing the carpet and um and then just an overwhelming sense of love that felt like it was devouring. Um just, you know, and so and then that 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 shift stayed around, although as the first big experiences happen, as you know, they're very big, it's like turning the lights on. But it just sort of stabilized as the as sort of the context of my life. After that, kind of living in the now. Um, And then then the deeper work of the embodiment and the refinement, as I saw strands of of this kind of suffering that was still there. Or a new sex addiction popped up after that. Who would have known? It was never there before. After the awakening, here came a sex addiction. Um, And then just kind of navigating all these addictions, but watching them fall away as I dealt with the drivers and the beliefs. Like one by one, they would kind of just fall the away, and eventually I then decided to write about addiction, um, and then came the Kilby Center and so forth.
1: Awesome. That's, uh, it's, it's painful yeah. and, and beautiful. And,
2: yeah uh, I, I had a similar
1: experience. I was vision questing. I was going through this horrible existential angst, and I you get know, everybody I love is going to die, everything's going to pass away, blah 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 blah. And then this presence came, this holy sacred presence, and, and the message was, there is no loss, dummy. I added the dummy, but it, there is no loss. Right. It's like, what?
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> there is no loss. There's a rearranging of the furniture, you know, and really different, interesting, you know, things go on, but there is no loss. Right, ever And I was like, oh, right, jeez, Lord of whatever, uh, mystery, Jesus, well, Buddha, I'm not sure what, but Wow. <laughs> And, and that just changes the whole damn story, you know. It's like we're really stumbling around in the dark, you know, knocking into each other when, when it's just you know knocking into ourselves. We're yeah. just into ourselves. So wake up! Yeah, I That's
3: love our funny. sharing our stories here, you guys. Uh, Scott, uh, I really appreciate it. And Doug, you, uh, uh, John, you too. And I, Doug and I've shared stories as well. I remember years ago, 20 years ago, I was in the training uh, program at the Jung Institute here in Los Angeles. And here we all we were, and we were hearing all these seminars. This went on for six years. And I remember later in the process, I remember asking, could we talk about what it is that got us here, you guys? And it was the first time ever uh, that in that entire program that I had a seminar earlier. This would be a, 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 a certified analyst. Finally, telling, talking. And he told his stories about surfing in Santa Barbara, where the heavens opened up in essence for him. And Scott, the same for you. And Doug. I, I, John, excuse me, I, I just laugh because this is, this is kind of the reason for the season. And it feels so damn good to be talking about it together.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. And you know, John mentioned there's a lot of pain. I, I, there's, there was yeah. pain. Away. That's part yeah. of the process. Yeah. 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 But it's been, it's been beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and Scott, yeah. if people are you know still listening to this, I think that this is you know uh, attracting something a strange attractor here oh how do they how do they and you know and I'm sure we'll have this on the screen and everything but just let us know how do they get a hold of you and if they're they're hurting and or their loved ones hurting and and obviously this is a very very um unusual and I think deeply profound model of recovery that you've developed that uh it's just extraordinary and and how how do they get a hold of you and what do they do and where is it and all that stuff
2: yeah, the Killaby Centers, we have a couple facilities. We have a detox uh, house for, for the higher level of care in La Quinta, California, which is really Palm Springs, California. And then the Killaby Center for Recovery is the main facility, and it's and it's also very near Palm Springs. So they can reach that by going to com K-I-L-O-B-Y center.com. So they can come into our program, or I actually do work with some people on the side, depending on the... So you know in intensives, but we also have facilitators now doing this work all over the world. So if somebody can't come to the center and they want to work with one of our trained facilitators, I can we can redirect them there. But just just write to the Kilby Center.
1: Is it a residential place? I mean, you have a place to come and stay.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's really all levels of care: detox, residential, right. intensive outpatient. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you've been in the business, business, John. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it
1: just depends at what point people or people may want or the, the 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 exterior circumstances of their life are forcing them right to get into treatment like we're changing the locks writing you out of the will I'll never speak to you again I'm taking the kids and you know blah blah and you have to show up you know you don't want it but again there were some studies that showed that that the, uh, the rates of success people that wanted to be in treatment didn't want to be in treatment were about the same but you know that was traditional treatment. I don't know if that, that, that still stands anymore, but also you have to determine where somebody is in that level. You know, you know, it's like some people, I mean, I've worked with people who are just doing, you know, five or six grams of of heroin a day, plus two bottles of vodka and a bunch of pills and smoking cigarettes and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, you don't, coaching them online is certainly not going to do anything. They teach you get detoxed and into a treatment center for a long time, but some people are just starting to lose it, you know, and I said, okay, you know, And I've done really good work with professionals and stuff because they've had some sense of accomplishing and discipline and hard work has to get, you know, they have that capacity and they're willing, they're able to do it on their own. And if they can't, then we'll we'll figure it out. But anyway, there's all these different levels of addiction and and it comes in a lot of shapes and forms, as we know. And we have to, you know, determine what people need uh, working with them and their family members, loved ones.
0: Scott, I wanted to talk into, you mentioned uh, the Wide variety of levels of care that you provide, you know, to get people all the way through the process. And in the telling of your own story, too, you touched on something just critical, which is the importance of continuing that work of inner exploration after you're grounded, after you're sober, after you're starting to get these things, dealing with some of the other things that continue to reveal themselves and continuing to pop up. And I'm wondering I mean, first of all, uh, is that part of your uh, ongoing outpatient treatment? In the, Killy, in the Kilby Center as a whole and also what else people listening to this can do who are sober and generally feeling good now or maybe are struggling right now to continue to work with themselves if there are particular elements of, of shadow work or grounding or analysis that can help people deal with those things as they may arise in the post-acute
2: phase. Um it's a It's a big question, so what's what's coming up is in a sense all of my recovery has been harm reduction. harm reduction is a new is a new term. and when I first heard the term, I was kind of weary of the term, but when I started looking at it, you know if you think about it's, it's a lifelong thing it's, this is the point of the conversation here is that it's an unfolding that happens, and if you think of it like on a pyramid of of substances and activities, at the very top is your primary one drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever. but quite often as that falls away. Um, people are going to the wrong, right below that, which is the sugar, caffeine, tobacco, sex, porn, love, addiction stuff, and we're really tr- we're constantly trading off these things, and it, it, we're we're reducing harm. So we're still responding, obviously, to our tra- our unresolved trauma, and our shame and our self-esteem and our problems. Still doing it by using things, but we're reducing the harm. So if people could understand, because I think in our culture we have this idea that if somebody's on drugs or alcohol, that that's the problem. That's not the problem. That's simply the way that they're responding to the the problem right now. So then as that goes away, we we teach people that what's probably going to happen is, okay, now you're going to start wanting to eat a lot of cake, or you're going to find yourself searching for porn, or you're going to find yourself, you're the guy at the AA meeting who can't leave the coffee pot. So what we're trying to get people to do is, I mean, really it's all harm reduction until, until our systems get so stabilized and balanced that we're just not needing to, to be compulsive about whatever substance is on that rung. Yeah. When you think of it that way, then you can't think of treatment or even recovery as happening within a short period of time. It's not a 30, 60, 90, or even a five-year plan. It's To what to what extent are you still using something compulsively in order to, to cope with these things? And so if people understand that, then they understand that they're ju- we're just lighting the fire for them to continue exploring and uncovering the drivers and letting other addictions fall away after. And then they understand it as a lifelong unfolding, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a sentence so much if they're really engaged. It feels like, like, like they're really interested in, in discovering what's going on with them throughout. You know, Because that's the best way to recover, is if you're interested in your own recovery, if you're juiced about it, that, that goes so far.
0: Being a seeker too is an important part of that whether that's a fire you've lit or something that in your case and you know was the case for me and I certainly it seems uh both Bob and John as well were seekers Mm. before becoming involved in this work but uh it's that continual edging closer and closer to truth and and the burning desire to do so and move closer and closer to all that we are and all that we
1: can be yeah I was going to say (laughs) that Scott, the whole process you're talking about, harm reduction, and how it, you know, over time, it it, it sounds really compassionate, and it also sounds imminently realistic. You know, we would like people to come out of a treatment center in 90 days, you know, (laughs) bulletproof, and have all their habits, and this, and that, and the other, and it just probably, you know, probably that's not going to happen, you know, very often, and so it's, it's a continual process of improvement, and Some of the the parts just with the ego structure itself, you know, some of our, our beloved addicts, when we get to, you know, treatments that were so beat up, maybe we had super dysfunctional childhood with not good enough parents and everything. So we don't have really those ego structure and character built into play so we can make those long term decisions. So in some sense, we have to reparent people. And then we have to reparent ourselves in order to have the kind of the inner support so that we can begin that seeking and begin that process of of letting the scum, you know, come up, putting the water in, you know, and starts to to flow out pretty soon. And, you know, after a period, the water is completely pure or if not completely pure, much purer than it was before. And uh, I, I, I really like that. And I think that may be. You know, instead of this just binary sober, not sober, you know, recover, not recovered, whatever the hell that means. There's yeah. the developmental
2: process that's
1: extended over a lifetime.
2: Yeah, because after eight years of being in abstinence, for me, I had cancer and then I had a uh, testicular removal. So I had to take painkillers. And of course, in the program um, that I was in, it was like, well, of course, that's not using. But the way that I saw it was that because when I took the painkillers after the surgery, I got a buzz off of it. And I remembered the system remembered the feeling and why it liked that feeling. and what I, I started to really look at abstinence at that point for my own recovery is like what what is the measure of success of my own recovery because I can't say that I haven't taken painkillers now because I have and so in, in, everybody was saying, "Well that's okay, you had cancer." I was like, but that's not what I'm talking. I'm talking about like what is the measure of one's success And so then I started to, to try to uh, to look at it's really my relationship to, to all. Potential addictive substances, even chocolate cake, can be problematic. Um, um, anything can be for me. So if my relationship is changing to these things, and I'm feeling deeper sense of peace and a sense of uh, love and joy, and, and 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 I'm ending the 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 avoidance and the bypassing in my own life, and I'm really feeling everything, and I'm engaged in my in my life. I'm not transcendently removed from it, but I'm engaged in it, and if, if that can happen, then um, you know that that's powerful, Like and and that and that's how I, 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 for me, yeah, it's a little bit oppressive to talk about recovery as either you're abstinent or you're not, because most people, if, if you look at them, it's probably somewhere on a continuum where people relapse a few times, yeah. many people never get clean, but certain people might slip every now and then, or they go, they'll go from drugs and alcohol to something else to something else. It's just a really wide variety. So- what I'm interested in my personal life is, am I free? Am I at peace? Am I connecting with other people in a way that's real and authentic? Am I, am I exercising those parts of myself that, that have the greatest benefit for me and others? And if that's happening, um, that's, that's recovery, right? And I'm relating differently to everything, to my world, to all substances, to everything. And that, to me, is more powerful than saying I've had I've 13 years or 14 years in recovery the, as a time-bound measurement how I'm doing now, is what matters.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and and can our passions be life-affirming and useful not only to ourselves, but to the world, you know? Instead of just, and obviously when you're doing substances or activities or whatever they might be, trying to change your brain chemistry so you feel better, so you can comfort yourself, so you're no longer afraid or whatever it is you're dealing with, you know? and. And yeah, you substitute sugar for that. And of course, I'm on this carb, carb-free, uh, low-sugar diet right now and shopping. Oh, my God, sugar. It just, you know, it's really awful. Anyway, uh, it, you, like you said, you reach that stability. And I think the, the, the ongoing interior work of the small self becoming uh, well hooked up with the large self begins to quiet the nervous system. And begins to make us more resilient, just on a physical, uh, 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 neuro, brain level, and, and our whole nervous system begins to be able to, to respond and be more at peace more often. And as we continue that, and uh, yeah, we begin to do that. And I think we were we were talking earlier about we're all INFPs, I believe. On the is that what we're saying on the Myers Brig. And so we're all introverts here. But when we get together, something really beautiful happens, you know, and uh, and. Obviously, part of that field right now, Scott. So, and and that's that's this is the high. This is this is an authentically beautiful moment that that affirms and strengthens uh, the whole structure, both the non-dual and our our small, relative little self. You know, the the beautiful Scott, the beautiful. This is, I think, it's about time to wrap this. But Scott, every time I connect with you, it's like the last time I did it. We, we, I think, you said, "How come we haven't talked? Spoken so long?" You know, there's such a you know a resonance here.
3: And, uh, I've, I've been pondering something from early on, and I don't want to go into it right now. That's why I asked about time, I think, earlier, Doug. I'd love to have you back for a, another visitation, if you're willing, Scott. I was very touched earlier, as I was by the first time I met you, by, I don't have a language for it so much, but it's like non-oppositional thinking, <clears throat> Yeah. Uh, and and it was implied, something you said earlier, and I actually was chewing on it as I was listening to you. I'd love to come back to that with you in more depth, uh, maybe on on another occasion. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about that, and they're born out of my experience working with clients. The way that you don't set up polarities or dualities, and that you do that very intentionally to to embrace apparent opposition, is something that's very parallel to what I I really find um, kind of organically useful with clients. I'm learning from clients what works, and when they come into a, a, a setting like... For anybody to come into your presence, Scott, they would be able to feel and taste this. To come into a, a a conversation where I can lead a group where everything will be honored, everything will be there's there's no privileging or higher. It's just we're going to work with everything. There's something to that, and I, I I even have the chills right now talking about it because I'm just getting 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 a sense of that kind of by the week, and I I feel like you're uniquely qualified by who you are, Scott, to speak into that. And I'd I, I love to almost have like a whole session just on whatever that's about. <laughs> you know?
2: I'd love to, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Thank you so much, Scott, for your presence. It's a profound presence. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Absolutely. Deeper, deeper. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit integralrecoveryinstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.